Some of the most delightful times in my life have been in a classroom sitting at the feet of a teacher who had an amazing ability to impart a message. In fact, this past week, I spent two or three hours listening to some cassette tapes of a teacher that I sat in his class about 35 years ago. And as I listened to those, I thought about the amazing ability that that man had in teaching that class. I'm able to go back now and look at the notes that I wrote down in some of those classes and with sweet memories be able to think about those times. As you approach the Bible and you get to Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, and as you open those words of that great Sermon on the Mount, you can really study with the Savior. You can sit at the feet of the master teacher, listen to and just fall upon every word that the Lord has to say. You know, the Lord's sermon forces us to evaluate our lives. Every time I read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, I recognize that it is forcing me to look at myself and ask the question, am I living up to the ideal which the Lord has presented in this sermon? Sometimes we focus on how others perceive us. In fact, the Lord talks about others looking at us and whether we would do our alms, whether we would uh, fast or whether we would pray in order for others to see us. And if that's what our goal is in life, then we have received our reward. Others think, I'm only going to concern myself with what God thinks about me. I'm not going to worry about what my neighbor thinks or what my brother thinks. You see, as I approach the Bible, I understand that God not only wants us to put Him first, please Him first, but God wants us to be concerned about how we are perceived by others. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, as Paul was describing that contribution for the needy saints, he said we should take thought for things honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. I've got to make sure that I conduct myself so that others can see God living in me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, talks about our having an impact on this world for God. And so we're going to look at three things in our lesson this morning. Verse 13, we'll look at salt. Verses 14 through 16, we'll look at the shining light. And then we're going to talk about being saints and making an application. Let's move along. Let's begin with our reading in verse 13. I hope you keep your Bibles open there. Because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, the Lord is using a metaphor. I know that you didn't come here for an English lesson, but if you'll remember when you were in English class, there were two figures of comparison. 
And the first one is a direct comparison. That's called a metaphor. And then there's the other comparison, which you use the word like or as, and that's a simile. The metaphor is used frequently in the Bible. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. So those are all metaphors. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. And when you think about that, there are two main uses for salt. The first one was for flavor. And if you don't think that salt has a tremendous flavor on your food, you let your physician tell you, cut back on your sodium, and then you'll realize food doesn't taste nearly as well as you thought it did. But you know, the Bible talks about that. In Job chapter 6 and verse 6, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? That's pretty basic and pretty simple. Salt provides a flavor for flavorless food and even provides an enhancement for food that does have flavor. In Colossians 4 verse 6, Paul writes, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You see, the salt is where you and I add in those words which give our speech a little bit of flavor. You know, I think the Lord's talking about good words, gracious words. But I want you to imagine a person who's a monotone. He speaks at the same tone constantly, never changes, no inflection. What happens to you pretty soon? Like what some of you are doing already. <laughs> you start getting to where you lose attention. Has no flavor. The idea of salt is, is that it has some flavor. But it was also used as a preservative. And our Lord spoke these words on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was really quite significant because salt was used as a preservative for fish. Most fish were caught fresh, but if they did preserve them, they would salt them. But I want to also point out to you that salt was commanded in the sacrifices. In Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, In every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Even God expected the sacrifices to be seasoned with salt. I think also there's the emphasis upon how a person, if they wanted to destroy the land, would sow the land with salt. In Judges 9.45 it says, So Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and killed all the people who were in it. And he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Someone said, why would he do that? If you sow the land with salt, then it will no more produce any kind of vegetation. It ruins or destroys the land. Now, how could salt lose its flavor? Most of us would say sodium chloride or salt has a salty taste. And it doesn't lose that characteristic. 
But the truth is, most of the salt that was used in the Bible lands came from the Dead Sea, or as the Bible sometimes refers to it, as the Salt Sea. And I remember the first time that we went to the Dead Sea, we stopped in an area they call Sodom, where there's a rock, looks like a woman standing on the side of a cliff, and they say, that's Lot's wife. But I remember the bus driver and the guide saying, this is all salt, and I thought it was dirt. But you go over and you pick it up and you see that it's got the crystals in it, and you you observe it is salt. I brought some of it back with me. But the truth is it's not pure. It's not just sodium chloride. It has some magnesium and several other elements within it. But what would happen is people would take that with them and as it would become moisturized, the salt part of it would dissipate out and to the point where it lost all of its salt contents and it became nothing more than literally dirt. And that's what he's talking about. If the salt loses its flavor, what you have, it doesn't season your food. He said, how will it season Now I want to move quickly to the idea of the shining light. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine that they may before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now when we get here, there are two metaphors. He does say you are the light of the world, that is it. But then he spreads it out to two different ways. The first one is a city that is set on a hill. You know, today, many of our Cities, many of our communities are built in valleys, especially here in Tennessee. If you go up on top of Harrison Ferry Mountain and you come toward McMinnville at night, you'll see we're in a valley. If you go to the east and visit our friends in Dunlap, you will really observe they live in a valley. But in Palestine, in biblical times, People lived on hills. They wanted to be able to see an army approaching from a distance away. And so cities were most often built on the top of a mound or on top of a hill. And as a person would approach that city at night, they could easily see the city. And someone would say, but they didn't have street lights like we have street lights. Oh, but they did have light. They had these little lamps. I've got one of them in my office. And they would burn olive oil. But someone would say, well, that doesn't give off much light. Well, if you go to Acts 20 and verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. What you do to compensate for more light is you have more lamps. And because of that, a city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden. A person from a long distance away can be able to see that city sitting on a hill. Second, Usage is that of a lamp stand. 
A lampstand was a furnishing that was a part of a house. You know, today, most of the time, we suspend our lights from our ceilings. That's fairly easy because we use electricity. But if you have to put oil in a lamp and you have to light the lamp, then they use lamp stands. And they were generally fairly tall and they would sometimes have what we would might refer to as candles on them. But frequently they would be a place where a person would put a lamp so that everybody who was in the house could be able to have the benefit of that light. In Hebrews 9 and verse 2, For the tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is the sanctuary. Part of that was what sometimes we call a menorah, but a lampstand where light was provided for the tabernacle. Luke's parallel account in chapter 8 and verse 16 says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who are entered may see the light. That should be quite obvious to us. But you know, there's two sources of light. There is what is considered source light and reflected light. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 41, Paul explains that. He's talking about, for instance, the kind of light that one would see in the sun and the light that one would see in the moon. And he says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. We all know the sun is a source light. Light emanates from that burning ball. We also know that the moon is not source light. It's reflective light. And even reflective light can be very bright. In fact, you may or may not have heard this weekend is very special. What's going to be called the super moon. Largest, brightest. If the weather will clear up, we'll be able to see it. But it's reflective light. Now, Jesus is the true light. And you and I are simply reflections of his light as we do what he does. I like the way John puts it in 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's the true light, and we're simply reflections of it. As such, Christians are to be the light of the world. In Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, the truth is we stand out because we're different, because we reflect the light which is from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the world is full of darkness. Or as Paul put it to the Ephesians in chapter 5, 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed or made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He's telling Christians, wake up and recognize you are to be a light to this world. But now there's a passage that I would like for you to turn to. I know that many of you look at the scriptures on the screen, but this is one of the ones that you would do well to mark in your Bible. And it's found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, in verses 1 through 3. And really the section, the latter section of the book of Isaiah, is all about the coming of our Savior. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 the new name that he was going to bring, chapter 56 and chapter 62, and all of the events that surround it. And when you get to verses 1 through 3, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people but the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. For the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. The latter part of verse 2 makes it clear we're reflected light. The light is going to come upon you. It will be seen in you. But when you get to verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light. When the gospel began to be preached in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, then as it began to radiate out, and that's the idea of radiating light, out to Samaria, out to the uttermost parts of the earth, who took the gospel message to all the world? It was the Jewish people. They were, these early Christians, the light spreading out into all the world. I think there's more to Jesus saying, you are the light of the world, than just simply saying, this little Christian, my light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. He's trying to sh say that you are the message of Christ that's going to go out into all the world and spread that light. Which brings me to the application portion of our lesson. As I prepared this lesson, I searched through every occurrence in the Bible of the word salt and every occurrence of the word light. And I came to Colossians 1 and verse 12, and I saw in that verse something I thought was really significant. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Saints in the light. You see, the truth is, when we are a saint, don't think of the Catholic doctrine of somebody who's been voted to a position of higher value or example. 
think of a person who has been set apart for the Lord's use. He's qualified us to be partakers of the saints and the light. That's who we are. Jesus was concerned about the diminished effect of the salt. Salt that's lost its flavor. He's concerned about the diminishing of light, putting it under a basket. How do we as Christians cease to be effective? When do we lose our saltiness? When do we lose or hinder our light? I suggest to you when we start sinning. See, there may be people in the community who look up to us who say, you know what, that person there, they're a good man. They're a good woman. They do a lot of good for the Lord's church. They help people. And then all of a sudden sin creeps into their life and they destroy their good influence. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 uh, well, let's begin with 2 Timothy 2, 20-22. But a great house are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lust and pursue righteousness Faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In verse 21, he talks about people who are sanctified, that's saints. They are useful for the Master. When I am salt, when I am light, I'm useful for God. When my salt loses its saltiness, when my light grows dim... As he said in verse 13, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. We become worthless to the Lord. 1 John 2.10 says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. He's able to show someone else the way. When our light goes out, we're not able to show anyone else the way. Perhaps the best commentary on this, though, is found in Romans 2. First part of that chapter, God looks at the Gentiles. And as Paul writes this, he talks about those people who consider themselves a Jew. In verse 17, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Listen carefully now. A light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When you and I claim to be light... And we live like the dark world, we lose our effectiveness. But we also lose our effectiveness when we do not stand out. When we capitulate to the majority, 
We live the lives that they live. Exodus chapter 32 or 23 verse 2 says, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. If I allow myself to go along with the rest of the world, then I will end up being evil and destroy whatever influence I might have. Yes, people may say bad things about you now. They may revile you, but ultimately they will respect you. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, if I understand there are things that diminish my influence, are there things that can increase my influence. On Titus 3, Paul is trying to persuade Titus to teach the congregation there in Crete how important it is to fulfill our role. He said, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable to men. Verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they be not unfruitful. God's wanting us to be the kind of people who do good works that people can see and observe. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You see, the very assembly that you and I are in today is to stir up, to promote, to encourage. When I go out of here, I'm going to be salt. I'm going to be light. I'm going to do good works that bring glory and honor to God. And God gets the credit when his people do good works. The truth is, Satan wants you to believe that you don't have any influence. He wants you to think like this. Hey, I'm just one person. I'm not in any poor position. I don't have all of the money that other people have, so I can't do great things. Paul put it like this in Romans 14, 7, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Every one of us have influence. And that influence is either for good, for which the Lord gets the credit, or it is not. God doesn't want us to be conformed to this world, but be a transformed one. Romans 12, 2 be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And great influence for good comes when a person chooses to serve God. See, the truth is, this morning, here's what I know happens. Someone is thinking in their mind, it's time for me to obey the gospel. 
It's been on your mind for quite some time, but you realize, I really need to do that. You step out, and you come forward, and you sit here on this front pew, and you, you say, I want to be a Christian. The influence that you have on someone else says, they had the courage. They had the determination. I can too. If you need to become a Christian this morning, through faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing that faith and being baptized, when we sing this invitation song, you need to come. And if you're one of God's children walking in your ways rather than serving God, it's time for you to come back home. Would you come now while we stand and sing?